be with you again to explore the second of our Lenten Gospel readings, again from the Gospel of Luke, and again a a passage that has many typically Lucan features about it, as we shall see, keeping in mind that in this journey through the five Gospels of Lent, the two questions that overarch our exploration are those most basic questions that we need to return to again and again and again. Who is Jesus, the Messiah? What does it mean to be the Messiah? Because there were all kinds of answers to that question. And then the second question, who are you, who am I as a disciple of this Messiah? In other words, what's the meaning of messiahship and discipleship? And they are questions that are always old and always new. Again, in seeking to grapple with those questions through this Lenten journey, our prime resource is what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And where on the first Sunday of Lent we saw one of the great biblical archetypes, the desert, with all its resonance, here on this second Sunday of Lent we find a second of the great biblical archetypes. This time it's the mountain. Now this archetype of the mountain wasn't unique to ancient Israel, of course. It's found in all kinds of ancient and and, uh, pagan religions. The mountain as the place of encounter with the divine. And this is absolutely true in the Old Testament where the mountain is seen as the place of the theophany where God appears, God is shown forth on a mountain. And the sense was that that on a high mountain, as Jesus and the disciples are here in the Transfiguration story, you were closer to God, who was always conceived as being the sky God, up there. So there were the mountains that were just part of the the landscape, but also there were the man-made mountains, things like ziggurats, which you find in, in, in all kinds of cultures. Pyramids would be in the same semantic field as it were. So the higher you went, the closer you were to God. In the Gospel of the second Sunday, we hear of Jesus going up into a high mountain which has traditionally been associated with Mount Tabor in the Holy Land where I don't doubt many of you have been, overlooking one of the great battlefields of the ancient world, the plain of Megiddo. So much so, so many great battles were fought on this plain, partly because it was the only flat territory in the region, so that if Egypt was coming to meet one of the Mesopotamian empires, they would tend to meet in this plain of Megiddo, and overlooking it is Mount Tabor, which is, someone said, the the royal box overlooking one of the great battlefields of history. So if it were Mount Tabor, and we can't be sure of that, then the transfiguration happens overlooking the, uh, one of the great emblems of violence in the world. So much so 
that Megiddo gives its name to the final battle between good and evil, Armageddon. Now, other mountains where we find uh, God showing himself forth, mountains of theophany, aren't hard to name from the Old Testament, Sinai being the obvious pick. Sinai, which is also known as Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And again, you think of the prophet Elijah taking refuge in the cave on Mount Horeb and God then passing by, not in the great fire or the earthquake, but in the voice of a thin silence. So the the Old Testament is replete with mountains of theophany. But also we find in the transfiguration story of today cloud, which is also one of the signs of the divine presence. The cloud that descends upon Sinai in the great theophany there that leads to the giving of the law, the Torah, and then the cloud that leads the chosen people by day through the desert, again the sign of God's presence, the cloud that descends upon the tent of meeting whenever Moses goes in to speak face to face to God. So, so here in the, in the transfiguration story in Luke, we find a cloud coming and covering the disciples with shadow so that this again draws upon the Old Testament. So a cloud upon a mountain, this is a moment of theophany. So it's making claims about Jesus, again answering that question, who is he? Well, he's not just another prophet. He's not just another teacher or miracle worker. There is in this moment they see something of a theophany. In other words, this is the presence of God, God with us. The glory is seen. The story, as Luke tells it, is situated between two prophecies of the Passion, which leave the disciples at this point of their journey bewildered. So between these two prophecies of the Passion and on their way to Jerusalem, which will be on their way to death, though they can't know that at this time, Luke inserts the transfiguration. So it's light in the midst of darkness, as it were. In other words, it's looking to Easter. It's a kind of a a prefiguration of Easter. Again, with a typically Lucan touch, we see that Jesus goes up the mountain to pray. Now, Jesus at prayer is a distinctively Lucan theme. He begins his public ministry in the baptism at prayer, unique to Luke. And he will conclude his ministry, as it were, on the cross, again in prayer. So Jesus in prayer is a very distinctively Lucan feature. And here in the moment of transfiguration, when his glory is revealed, he is at prayer. Now again, one asks, what kind of prayer is this? It's a prayer which is fundamentally a listening to God. That's always where Christian prayer begins. Because as Jesus said, if all we do is speak in prayer, then we babble like the pagans. So Christian prayer does speak eventually 
or can speak eventually, but only after it's listened. And the listening can be deep and it can be long and it can be listening even to the silences of God. So Jesus at prayer is listening to the one whom he always, when he prays verbally, Jesus always in Luke's Gospel addresses God as Father. So the listening that we find in the prayer of Jesus is the Son listening to the Father. And this will be confirmed by the voice of the Father, this is my Son, the Chosen One. So the Son is the one who listens to the voice of the Father in the midst of all the other voices. We saw it in the desert. He heard the seductive voice of Satan, but he listened to the, to the voice of the Father, and that was his triumph, a triumph of obedience. You see this in Paul. Jesus is the obedient one, the new Adam, who is obedient where Adam was disobedient. He is the, the fully human being, the human being as God intended us to be, because he follows the way of a liberating obedience, and that liberating obedience, which begins with a listening to God, is at the very heart of biblical religion. So, Jesus as the Son who listens. Now, the disciples see him, we're told, and that's again a very Lucan touch. They see him, but the question is, do they understand what they see? And the answer, it seems, is no, because shortly afterwards they're arguing about who's the greatest. And if they had understood what they had seen, they wouldn't have been arguing about that. So the question is, do they understand, do they know the truth of what they see? And the answer is no. The question of understanding what we see goes back to the very beginning of Luke's Gospel where Jesus in the temple at the presentation is held in the arms of Simeon who says, this child will be a sign, is the Greek, a sign spoken against or misinterpreted. So Jesus is consistently the sign misinterpreted. People don't understand what they see. And the disciples, we are told, when the voice comes to them from the cloud, are told, listen to him. Don't just look at him, listen to him, because unless you listen, really listen, not just hear, but listen to Jesus, you won't understand what you see. And this is supremely true of the death of Jesus. They saw him die, but they didn't understand. Think of the disciples on the way to Emmaus. They'd seen him die, but they hadn't understood at all until they listened to him on the road to Emmaus. That Emmaus story, by the way, gathers up, in summary, the entire Gospel of Luke. So until they listen to Jesus, they don't understand what they've seen. But once they do listen, really listen, then they go back through the darkness, not to the city of death, but to the city of life. The city's the same. It's their vision that has changed. And until they do understand what they see, they will be silent. And we're told that the disciples initially, they kept silence. They told no one what they had seen. Well, how could they tell people what they'd seen? Because they didn't understand what they'd seen. So there will always be a silence until we listen to him and understand what we see and understand 
that his death is an exodus, as Luke says. Again, this is unique to Luke. His death is an exodus. It's a journey out of slavery into freedom. It's a great act of liberation. And we're told he's in conversation with Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. See, only Jesus unlocks the truth of the law and the prophets to understand this death in all its ambiguity as an exodus, as a triumph, not a defeat, as life, not death. So this question of how to read sacred scripture is at the heart of the third gospel. And you'll never, ever really learn to read scripture unless you learn to listen more and more deeply to the voice, the word of Jesus Christ, is what Luke would say. Once they do listen, we're told, they awaken. And, and this, this coming to understand what you see is always an awakening. This is the language again of Easter, of resurrection. They wake up, and we have to wake up too, because in a, a narcotic culture like ours, we can be asleep in all kinds of ways without even knowing it. So to listen to Jesus is to wake up. Peter then says, well, and he doesn't know what he's saying, and that's true, he doesn't know. But the best he can do is, let's build three tents here, let's do something. A tent for you, for Moses and for Elijah. What a good thing to do, he thinks. Uh, Don't just listen. Do something, Peter. But no, he's told to listen. Don't, uh, Don't build three tents on top of the mountain. That's not the response that's required. That's not what it means to be a disciple. And the truth that is proclaimed implicitly in this transfiguration story of the second Sunday is that Peter, James and John, who were the, the, the inner core group of the twelve, in all kinds of ways you see them with Jesus, those three, Peter, James and John, here they are then on the mountain, that insofar as they listen, and this will be a long learning, they really learn to really listen to the voice of Jesus, who is the Son, who himself listens to the Father, then they don't build three tents, but they become the three tents where the glory dwells. And that's the call to us as we too come down the mountain with Jesus, that we too, having listened through these days of Lent, become the tents, the three tents where the divine glory dwells.